Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michaela. I have a short note before we jump into the show. For more than a year now, you've been listening to all my questions about banking, about crypto, about Apple and Tesla. But now, it's your turn to ask the questions. For a future episode, we'd like to hear what questions you have about business or finance. I'll take those questions right to our expert FT journalists around the world and get you answers. So let me know what burning questions you have. There's a few ways you can get in touch. First, there's a link in our show notes where you can record your question as a voice message and send it to us that way. It's easy, I promise. Or you can also just email me or tweet at me directly. My contact details are listed in the show notes too. We might play or read your question on the show. And I can't wait to see what you send in. So with that, let's get on to this week's episode. Making predictions about the state of the economy is never really an easy task. Economies are really big, complicated things. And our understanding of them, even at the most normal of times, is partial and limited. That's CFT's U.S. financial commentator, Rob Armstrong. It is hard to know what just happened in the economy, so far from knowing what is happening or what's going to happen. Oftentimes, we only know we've gone into a recession months or even years after the fact. Traditionally, economists, analysts, and journalists like Rob would learn about the economy by studying different kinds of data. They'd look at things like U.S. employment, the manufacturing sector, and housing. But lately, those sorts of indicators have been sending mixed messages. Some look like the economy's in a bad place, while others show an economy on the rise. But there's one place that Rob says we can find some clarity. We look at sort of macro statistics all the time that are taken from a mile up. But a company tells you what's actually happening. Uh, is there a great demand for houses or loans or something else? So it is one of the most direct windows into the economy that we have. Last week, the biggest banks in the U.S. opened up that window and reported their second quarter earnings. They provide a look into the financial health of consumers and of businesses in a very, very powerful way. Tens of millions of households have a debit card with Bank of America or Chase or Citi. And, you know, many thousands of businesses borrow money from them. So to hear how those households are spending their money and how those businesses are doing, bank earnings are a great place to start. So there are a few windows we can try to look at to understand what's happening with the U.S. economy. But which one gives us the clearest picture? I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. 
It's hard to decipher exactly what's happening with the U.S. economy right now. Are we headed toward a recession or not? Today on Behind the Money, we're going to talk through what the latest data from banks tells us and what that might demonstrate about the broader U.S. economy. Hi, Rob. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. So when economists are looking for signs of a potential recession, they're analyzing all different kinds of data that are known as leading indicators. Can you give some examples of what people are typically looking at and why they're not really proving to be so useful right now? A very good leading indicator is usually housing starts Mm -hmm. or housing permits. There's an old phrase in the economic punditry business, which is the housing cycle is the economic cycle because housing is very up and down. People build a lot of houses and then there's too many and then they stop and prices go up and et cetera. Obviously, the financial crisis. Yes, you saw an example of that. Exactly. Um, So normally we'd say, what are housing starts telling us? What are applications for building housing telling us? But what's weird right now is because interest rates have suddenly gone up uh, and house prices have wobbled. Nobody wants to sell their existing house. Mm -hmm. Everyone feels like this is a terrible time to buy a house. I'm not selling into a weak market. So increasingly, the only game in town if you want to buy a house is to buy a newly constructed house. So the housing industry is booming, the house building industry. But that may only because the existing house market is kind of paralyzed Mm. by the change in rates. Mm -hmm. So we're getting distorted messages from that signal as well. Mm -hmm. Let me talk about one other indicator that is usually quite a good leading indicator, but now might be sending a bit of a distorted message. Hours worked. So who tracks that? That is the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay, okay. And so the reason this is a good leading indicator is before a company that is feeling particularly good hires another worker, they will tell their current batch of workers to put in a few more hours. They'll start to offer overtime. And similarly, when companies are pinched, before they fire anyone – they will cut hours back because nobody likes to – it's very permanent firing someone. You want to make adjustments. So the first Mm. indicator, an early indicator of trouble might be adjustments in hours works. And we have in recent months, we have seen hours worked coming down. Mm -hmm. And what does that signal? That would be signaling that, wow, is the economy weakening a bit at the periphery here, right? Because companies aren't, you know, they're not firing anybody, but they're saying they're not giving them overtime. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. But the question is, that number is only coming down, but kind of, again, towards pre-pandemic levels. So what's happening? Uh, Are companies now hesitating to fire people because they have a memory of the pandemic times when they couldn't find enough workers? Or are they actually saying, man, you know, things aren't quite so good. Let's dial it back. The the phenomenon I'm talking about here is something called labor hoarding, that you want to keep access to workers uh, even when you can't necessarily use them that much. And there may be more labor hoarding because of memories of a couple of years ago. Ah, Okay. Are there any other indicators that you'd typically focus on? A lot of those have to do with manufacturing. 
right? If a, a manufacturer is hiring now, that means it's going to ramp up production and sales will go up later, right? So if you see new orders of manufacturing equipment or new hires uh, by manufacturers, that's like, okay, maybe in six months, eight months, things are going to be really good. The signals from the manufacturing industry are not very good in America right now. But we don't really know how to read that because if you remember during the pandemic, we were all sitting at home uh, ordering Pelotons and air fryers and yoga mats and et cetera. Now all we want is services mm -hmm. because we have all the Pelotons and air fryers and yoga mats we could possibly want. Yeah. And so now there's been this kind of shock in how we're spending our money. Mm -hmm. So normally the numbers coming out of the manufacturing industries in America might worry you. But now you're like, well, maybe this is just a blip. Then over time, this will just even out. Okay, so those examples of the indicators you shared, hours worked, manufacturing data, housing permits, they're proving to be a bit wonky at the present moment. But now, tell me about what you observed looking at bank earnings recently. Why are they useful? The very biggest banks in America are J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citibank, and Wells Fargo. And we care about what they say because they are so large and they have so many customers, both business customers and consumer customers. So they give you this snapshot that goes from Massachusetts to California, many, many households, many different kinds of loans. So as a kind of macro picture, it's really very useful. Mm. So what's been your biggest takeaway looking over these earnings reports? It is a very hard thing for a financial journalist to say, but things seem to be fine. Uh, I say with deep so regret. Optimistic. <laughs> I say with deep regret uh, that things are fine. So how do you know that? What about banks' earnings showed you that? When I think about bank earnings... I think about three indicators they give us that reflect on the health of the system in general. There's the spending trends that banks know about because we have all our debit and credit cards with them. There is the borrowing trends and in particular, bad debt trends. Who is getting in trouble, businesses or consumers, with the money they owe and their ability to pay it back? And finally, the health of the banks themselves. A healthy economy needs a financial system that's working well and not wobbling. And so it, if banks themselves are struggling to make profit, that is not a good sign for the system in general. Okay, so consumer spending, debt, and bank health are the three areas you're zeroing in on when you're looking at banks' earnings. So let's start by talking about bank health. A few months ago, you might remember that I had to call you up on very short notice to come on this yes. show. Um, yeah. Do you remember why I did that? Uh, yes, because banks were falling out of bed at that time, starting with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic got in trouble. Yep. And so there was a moment when it looked like we might have a banking crisis on our hands. Yeah. Yeah. And so Silicon Valley Bank collapsed mm. over the weekend. Yes. And we talked that Monday. 
So actually kind of at the very beginning of some of that chaos. Um, but even I really hope we, I said something smart. I hope well, that this is all a lead in to me seeing say, an incredibly yeah. so, prescient and intelligent. Thing. I was going to ask if you remember <laughs> what you you left us with. a certain I message. remember I only remember the smart things that I've said in my past. I have a very selective memory and I am thinking slash hoping that I said that the problems at Silicon Valley were mostly going to stay isolated with that bank, that it is not a systemic problem. Please tell me this is what I said. So so in in three words, you left us at the end of our show. You said, do not panic. Hooray. <laughs> Wiping my brow here. Um, Good. So but but in in the immediate aftermath of SVB collapsing, yes. things were a little panicky for, yes. for a bit. Um, we had the collapse of First Republic Bank, the collapse of Signature Bank. And then around the same time, that was when the Swiss government ordered UBS to take over Credit Suisse. A, a lot of yes. a lot of stuff was happening there. Um, but, uh, you know, since then, there hasn't been much else. And so that is why I want to ask you, um, what are these bank earnings telling us? Okay, so back in March, if you had to describe one most important cause of what happened to those banks, is it had to do with asset liability mismatch. And what happened back then was we found out that this small handful of American banks had really failed in that capacity. They had not prepared for the fact that interest rates change and their assets and their liabilities were poorly matched. What we've found out in the subsequent months mm -hmm. is that most American banks have not made those same mistakes or not made them to the same degree. So it's been really striking in the last just week or so to see the other banks that people were most worried about. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about there's a bank called Key and there's another called Zions and there's one called Comerica. And all these banks looked a little bit like Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of debt securities on their balance sheet or they had a lot of unsecured deposits or et cetera, et cetera. These banks have been rallying. They're not back to where they were in March. But investors are starting to breathe that big sigh of relief mm -hmm. about the banks they were most worried about back in March. So moving beyond the health of the banks themselves, let's talk about another area you were looking at within banks' earnings, consumer spending. What did you see and learn there? Somebody like Bank of America or Chase has in real time all the data about what all their customers as a group are doing with their credit and debit cards. And consumer spending continues to hold up. Debit and credit card use at both Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase was kind of in the up 5%-ish range versus the year before. There was like this incredible frenzy, right, like 2021, Right. We had just gotten out of lockdown and we were spending like crazy. And the worry was that there was this mad spike up and there would be this wretched trench afterwards. But instead, what we've seen is a gentle deceleration to a normal pace of spending, mm -hmm. which is really what you want to see in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's point number one. Mm -hmm. Point number two and 
probably more important as a forward-looking indicator of the health of the economy is borrowers, consumer and businesses, are they able to pay their loans back? So are we as a country falling behind on our credit cards, our business loans going into delinquency and then default? Yeah, sure. So what did the bank's earnings tell you about that? The answer is quite subtle here. So what we've seen this quarter and indeed in the last couple of quarters is that delinquency and default and loan write-offs and stuff like that are rising. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at the trend, you might get a little worried. Yeah, but that doesn't sound great. That doesn't sound great, and it's not great, but it's not as bad as it sounds, and I'll tell you why. During the pandemic, you have to remember, there were all these emergency government programs in place that made it very, very hard to fall behind on or default on your loan, both for consumers and businesses. So basically, the credit cycle in America went into a kind of deep freeze during the pandemic. And what we're seeing with those increases in, in losses or write downs or whatever metric you want to use is the credit cycle slowly waking up from its medically induced coma, which the government put it in. And although the increases are big, loans in trouble, the level of loans in trouble is actually lower than it was before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. So that's why we heard this word normalization so much in the bank's conversations with analysts and investors. They said, we're getting back to normal. And the question that was put to them is, when are we going to be normal? And there was a lot of answers like, maybe by the you know early next year, end of this year, we will be at default levels that are similar, that are kind of historically normal. Mm-hmm. So that's what bank earnings are telling us, essentially that by looking at the health of the banks themselves and these windows into consumer spending and borrowing, the U.S. economy is looking not half bad. So the general message is many of the indicators or metrics we depend on as observers of the economy are just hard to read right now. Yeah. Which is why I like looking at, at specific, you know, the, the consumer spending and the credit quality indicators out of banks. They, I think those are sending us a, a pretty uninterrupted signal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a pretty reassuring one. Yeah. I mean, I think bank earnings are a great economic indicator, a powerful economic indicator. And the message we're getting there is very sound. But with many of the things, the indicators or the metrics we usually look to, to gauge the economic outlook for the months ahead, they're still distorted by the pandemic we just went through. Yeah. So do you think that Jerome Powell should just be sitting, looking over bank earnings to decide what to do with rates going forward? I think, you know, I think they look at everything. Right. And they're, they are facing the same puzzles everybody else is wondering about. I think they are probably immensely pleased and relieved that the June inflation report was as benign as it was. But what they are worried about, actually, is that, if anything, is that the American consumer and household are a little too strong. Employment is still very high. Wages are still growing around 5%, so potentially above the rate of inflation. Uh, If anything, 
they're like, is the economy running warm enough to perpetuate inflation longer than we want? So even though inflation has gone from nine-ish to three-ish headline inflation, they're trying to get it to two. And they're sitting looking at consumer spending, wages, employment levels, and thinking, is this going to keep inflation at three to four, which they don't want? Maybe we could live with three to four, but it says right there in their rule book, thou shalt aim for 2%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where do you see this going? <sighs> now, now, you're, now you're asking me to get out the crystal ball. Um, the central bank raised interest rates 500 basis points, five percentage points in very rapid order. We can't rule out the possibility that that is going to have a delayed effect on the economy over time. So historically, it's been very difficult for central banks to get the timing of this thing right. And so there is a chance that in the coming two or three quarters, the very nice growth story that we have in America will slow down. You have to be alert to that possibility just because historically that's what's happened when central banks have done the kind of thing the U.S. central bank just did. If we have a worry, and I'm not saying we have a worry, but I'm a financial journalist and it's my job to worry about things. And the big worry is that activity is still strong enough that for all the progress we have made against inflation, the final progress we need to make will slip out of our grasp. It'll be hard to get the final bit of the job done on inflation. Well, Rob, thanks for joining me. We'll have to have you back on the show later this year to see how your latest predictions turned out. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more from this week's guest, Rob Armstrong, you can find him on the FT's newest podcast, All About Markets. It's called Unhedged, and you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, if you want to read more from the FT on what we talked about during this week's episode, the articles linked in our show notes are free to read right now. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. See you next week. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.